Welcome to a new wave of entrepreneurship. I'm Latifa Farah, Associate Creative Producer at Venture for Canada and the producer of a new wave of entrepreneurship. The focus of this podcast is to hear from changemakers and Canadian entrepreneurs to learn about how they've developed their entrepreneurial mindset and skills. In Season 7, we'll be chatting with CEOs, founders, and successful business leaders about their career journeys. We're excited to dive into these conversations about how to foster your entrepreneurial mindset and drive. In this episode, we're joined by John Ruffalo, the founder and managing partner of Maverick's Private Equity, a private equity firm focused on technology-enabled growth and disruption investment strategies, a firm run by entrepreneurs, funded by entrepreneurs, and for entrepreneurs. Throughout his career, John continues to be recognized for his unparalleled contribution to the growth of the technology sector and expansive vision of Canada's economy. In this episode, Scott and John will discuss different perspectives on fostering self-discipline. I am so excited to have John Ruffalo, the founder and CEO of Mavericks Private Equity on Venture for Canada's podcast this afternoon. We'll be talking about how to foster resilience and grit particularly in situations when you face significant setbacks that are completely outside of your control. In the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, where we've all seen how life can throw wrenches into our plans uh, and how the really bad things can happen uh, to folks that are completely outside of their control. One of the things that we are so passionate about at Venture for Canada is, to, is how to foster resilience and grit in young Canadians. And there are few people that I know who I think are more qualified to speak on this topic than John Ruffalo. John, thanks so much for coming on the podcast this afternoon. Thank you very much, Scott. So John, several years ago, you were hit by a tractor trailer while biking uh, outside of uh, Toronto. And your recovery from the incident has been uh, both very remarkable and incredibly inspirational, I know, to myself and to so many uh, others. What did you learn about fostering resilience uh, from this experience? Well, Scott, uh, first of all, I learned that uh, no one should go through uh, my experience, uh, you know, to understand the, the the value of resilience and persistence. But what it actually did for me is it sort of went full circle for me. So I had a long history of investing in uh, in early stage and later stage startups. And when people asked me what was the single thread, if there was one, that was common to the investments that you made, and my answer was and still is, is the individuals had a similar characteristic of persistence, resilience, and adaptability. Because whenever you're building a business, I don't care how well you plan you will 99.99% of the time be faced with crushing obstacles. And these are unforeseen obstacles and it's gonna be your ability to be so passionate that you will find a way to get around the obstacles and still continue moving on towards your goal. And what my accident, you know, unfortunately illustrated uh, to me was uh, even when you have physical uh, obstacles that come in your way like this, you do have a couple of choices to either pack it up and go home or to find a way to get around those obstacles. 
And so to me, you know, again, although this was not the way I wanted to illustrate it, um, uh, I was living the principles of how I was investing. In another interview, John, you speak about living uh, with uh, pain and uh, the, some of the chronic pain uh, that came as a result of, of the accident. And when I think of entrepreneurship, and as you mentioned, in, in building uh, um, a company or, or building a, any kind of new organization, there are, as, are, as you mentioned, constant struggle, constant challenges. Um, what are some tips that you have for young people on how to, to productively live with pain? Uh, and to, to not just tolerate, but potentially uh, to kind of live through it. Well, you better select an objective that you're really passionate about. And, you know, if you're building a company because you understand that there's a gold rush there, but you're not really solving a particular problem. And let me pick, I'm going to pick on an industry it's easy to pick on it right now, but the cryptocurrency industry, the blockchain underlying technology is a killer uh, uh, technology and will be here for the, for the long haul. I really believe it. But a lot of the applications that were sitting on top of it were get rich quick schemes, not fully, but a lot of them that I saw were, well, you're being driven not to solve an actual problem, but you thought, Perhaps there was a quick way to dollars. So the moment, uh, you know, a tidal wave and, you know, a black swan event occurs like it has, which was fully predictable in my view, the, the street fighters are the one that are going to say, yeah, it, it doesn't matter what, what's happening right now because I'm still building the business. But those who were focused in on riches are the ones that are bailing very, very quickly because they're realizing. Uh, that the pain of getting through to the other side, and it might be a long bout of pain, is just not worth it. And so kind of like what you said, when you're building a business, there is big and serious pain, uh, which might force you to pivot. But then there's the pains of every day. And frankly, those daily pains are meaningless in my view, in that you think about the objective and the path that you're going through. And the path is never straight. It's crooked. You, sm you smack into walls, but then you turn around uh, the corner. That will happen every day, but it is actually thrilling when you get around the door and go, oh, you know, I'm, here I am, I'm keeping on going. And, you know, that dream is still alive. And so I would just encourage people to never lose hope if, in fact, they're truly passionate about solving the particular problem that they're uh, that they're that they're uh, uh, trying to build. One thing to double click on that you mentioned in an earlier answer, John, was you talked about the link between adaptability and resilience, and how adaptable people are more resilient. Why do you think that that's the case? Despite the best of intentions of planning, and you you must plan. Uh, there is too many uncertainties uh, that 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 you're that you're dealing with that you actually may not even know, and all of a sudden, your skill sets that you might be relying upon may not be the necessary skill sets that you're going to require. So, as an example, uh, 
if you have a very technical founder who really understands how to build and code their project, raise venture capital at very, very high levels, and now all of a sudden is going to have to make a decision on how to finance the next round, but it will be nowhere near at the values before cost cutting starts to come in, et cetera. A lot of these founders are saying, you know, I'm not really a financial architect, but, you know, you're going to temporarily going to have to be one and you better learn really, really fast uh, because the rules of the uh, of the game have changed. I'm already seeing those founders that are quickly adapting to the revised environment and taking their lumps now and putting it behind them are seemingly moving much faster than those who refuse to believe that there has been a change in the market and are simply waiting for things to go back you know, to normal again, not recognizing that 2019 to 2021 was the anomaly. Not right now. We're in the norm right now. And so I could just see people's behavior. And then all of a sudden, if you're adaptable and recognizing, then you're able to keep on going and you know you're you're able to hammer away but if you cannot adapt you can be as persistent as you want but you're going to be persistently hoping that the world is going to change for you as opposed for you're going to have to change given the new world conditions yeah and to shift someone's leadership style and approach a little bit based on on the circumstance i've heard some writers use the, the term wartime CEO and peacetime CEO and, and how to shift kind of between uh, the two. You've used the term street fighter entrepreneurs a couple of times uh, in this uh, interview. John, what would you describe as like the attributes of like a street fighter uh, entrepreneur? What, what, what does a street fighter entrepreneur look like to you? To me, it's uh, someone who could have the vision to see where the company needs to go. But at the same time, uh, uh, you know, when the business starts to scale, okay, and you can start to see the street fighting, not when they're building a product, but you're in scale mode. And what happens in scale mode is you need to, you know, by its definition, you're scaling the organization and creating layers in the organization in order to execute at a faster rate than you can possibly have done by seeing everything yourself. The challenge when you start scaling and you, you start to lose your span of control over the organization. And what happened is, you know, the most interesting thing is, especially when the organization gets large, say a hundred million of revenues and plus, as the CEO, your biggest challenge is are you being told the truth? And even though it's, it's not a it's not a shot at your direct reports, but people want to report always good news. But that's not good for a CEO because you really want to figure out what are you doing that's not so good. So the street fighter CEO doesn't just accept it; they understand each aspect of the business and are able 
if they need to, to dive deep, ask the most junior question. And this is where I'm impressed with Elon Musk. Love him or hate him. Whoa, that's a street fighter. Why? He's asking each one, you know, what are you doing from a coding perspective? These folks are resisting because they've never been asked. And, you know, they're shitting their pants. You know, whether he really understands the code or not, I know exactly what he's doing. And, and you know, one of my uh, uh, great investors, uh, his name is Peter Gilgan, the biggest home developer in Canada, the biggest private home developer in North America. And he will say to you, I know what the cost of a nail is. And this is a multi-billion dollar organization. And he could zoom right down, right into the detail when he needs to, and know uh, if there's going to be a problem with his organization and whether he's getting bullshitted or not. A street fighter knows that. One topic I would love to explore a little bit is beyond an individual fostering resilience uh, or grit in themselves, how can a CEO foster that as a cultural attribute in an organization, including amongst all of the employees? So John, what advice do you have for CEOs or, or leaders in organizations on how to foster the character traits of, of resilience and grit in the people who work uh, for them? Yeah, this is a real challenge and one that, you know, when we built Mavericks, uh, uh, we tried, and and for those of you who might follow me on LinkedIn, you'll see me writing about the journey on building an organization just like what I'm describing. And it doesn't, you know, start with just platitudes and saying, you know, we deliver customer service and blah, blah, blah. You see all of these, you know, you know, softball statements that lots of CEOs made. We actually tried to build the organization from the ground up using culture. We started off with five uh, principles that is basically your social contract with the organization, but more importantly, with one another. And then we started to break down each of the five into its subcomponents so that we could actually determine as a group what are observable behaviors that you must abide by that we collectively agreed to and again and and it's embedded right into our evaluation system and so the point really is you may or may not agree with the cultural values and principles that we're setting I'm not saying they're the best ones, but they are the ones for this company. And if you don't like it, it's, I have no issue, but leave the company and go to another company where your value system is more aligned. But ours are in black and white and it continues to, we continue to go deeper and deeper. Um, and we also have a coach who goes through this with us together as a team every quarter formally and every week with the leaders of the business. And so 
we are trying to resemble or we're trying to build that kind of an organization. And, and where it really starts is once you find a person whose values resonate with the values of the organization, that's the filter in which we hire folks. It's not perfect, but it gets you mostly there. The challenge for us is going to be is we've been very, very careful right now. But as we scale up the organization, the only way this works is that the same values that and that I really wanted in this organization are so embedded in the individuals already that those filters are used by those individuals. And so I don't have to be directly involved. Right now I am, but eventually I won't. That will be the real test for our organization. Well, what advice do you have for young people on how to be more resilient and to not avoid productive conflicts, like in essence, uh, disputes, not disputes, but tough conversations that need to be had, but rather to face those conversations head on? Yeah, so yeah, so this is a uh, an interesting question, and one that I'd say uh, I've developed me personally uh, over time. Um, and I don't know when or why I did it, but it it evolved in that uh, I discovered I was personally better off telling the truth and being much more binary with the truth than to skate in the middle. And it's, and, and when I was quite uh, uh, specific, um, I found that I ended up with deeper and more meaningful relationships. It's no different, again, if, if any of you folks follow my LinkedIn posts, I like to think, and I did it, again, more by accident than design, I call out where I see bullshit in the corporate world. I just did this on Disney. I did this, I did this on you know, Bank of Nova Scotia when they had their fiasco, but uh, FTX, and it goes on. I'm not doing that to be salacious or to, I get, I, I'm not a media personality, so I'm not trying to get likes, but it frustrates me when I see inauthenticity. So either you are going to like me or you're going to hate me. And frankly, I don't care. Hey, there are I'm not looking to be liked, but I hope you would say, all right, but that's the truth, and there's not an agenda on there. Because what I find when you're in the middle and act like milk toast and don't, you know, have an opinion on something, then you know what? No one cares what you have to say. And that is to me the worst possible world you can be in. And so that's the same kind of scenario that I say that when you're dealing with fellow workers or employees. Don't be in the middle. Take a stand. And sometimes, will they hate you? Yes, they will. Move on with your life, but they will. But the ones that matter will love you and trust you. And those are the ones 
that really create value for your organization. Yeah, I think that those are, are really wise words, John. And it's something I've struggled with at, at various points around the desire to be liked by other people, which is, I think, a, he, very much a human one. And sometimes one of the things that's been, sometimes been helpful uh, for me, at least, is to just, is that acceptance, which is what you said. It's just say, yeah, you know what? People aren't going to like that decision. Um, if, you know, letting a person go or, you know, sometimes in life you have to make tough decisions and, or sometimes you're put in a position where, you might make one group happy, but you make another group unhappy. And to just simply mm -hmm. accept that that is the reality uh, of life. If you try to right. be liked by everybody, you're not probably going to do that much. Nope. You shouldn't be, you shouldn't be running an organization if that's your objective. Yeah. One piece that's interesting to explore as it relates to resilience is the relationship between resilience and self-discipline. And one of the things I've observed about you, John, looking at your bio and, and life history and the things you've accomplished is you seem like a very disciplined person in, in the sense of, of how you've kind of operated uh, in, in your life. What do you think is the relationship between self-discipline and the ability to overcome uh, challenges and, and obstacles? I don't know if that's correlated um, because I think that you could not I've seen people that are just resilient, but they're also um well let me say that they can be resilient, but if you're undisciplined, um getting around the barrier does become more difficult. Let me give you a live example, right? So you know when I built Mavericks I envisioned what Mavericks will be uh, on, uh, at the time of me launching the business and then 10 years forward. Not with a whole lot of detail, but I did a white paper on that. And I just envisioned what the ideal organization would look like. But I didn't know what all of the paths will be in order to achieve that and again i mentioned it's not in a straight line so the the interesting part about being resilient is resilience also means that once you smack your face into the wall and an obstacle comes you need to know what direction you're going to go next and you, you get your adaptability hat on, you try to look at, do you go left, right, up, down, around, how do I get around it? And, but I, you gotta know where you're going because if you don't know where you're going and you go around the obstacle, how do you know that you just got closer to your, to your end game? And being resilient and but not knowing and not having the discipline of knowing where you're going is going to drive you in a circle and so you know i have seen lots of very resilient people but they're not focused in knowing their end game and so you're absolutely right you really got to have the two together um and, and combine that discipline of the ultimate destination and 
you know, where it makes it really hard is where you have a whole bunch of employees that are drafting right behind you and you feel this monstrous pressure that you better be going in the right direction. And these employees will ask you, they, they'll follow you because they trust you and love you, but they think that you know what the master plan is. And I'm telling you right now, you're going to start to see how many companies that really have no idea what they were doing and where they're going, yet they were funded. This is what we're finding right now. And the ones that will survive are those that have that discipline of vision. One of the things you talked about earlier was that role of planning and recognizing that the pandemic and, and the topsy-turvy natures of the world means it's difficult to make plans, that plans are, that this external circumstances are, are constantly changing, uh, which means that someone can create a five-year plan, but the reality is, is five years from now might look completely different than the world today in a, for, for magnitude of different reasons. So John, what advice do you have for entrepreneurs on like, what is the role of strategic planning for, for an entrepreneur? How can strategic planning be done well? How can it be a tremendous asset? And in what ways can strategic planning be something that drags down a company? So what I'm helping the entrepreneurs, the first thing is, is really understanding how do they see the ultimate vision of a company? And that vision shouldn't change for 10, 20 years. Like it's, you know, using the old adage of, you know, Bill Gates was famous for he envisioned a desktop sorry, a, a computer on every desktop, right? That was the vision. That was this 20-year vision, not Microsoft's vision right now, you know, per se, um, but it lasted for a very long time. And so I do start off with that vision. So I even understand what kind of an organization do they think that they're going to. And, and again, you know, with, uh, it, 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 you can interpret ultimately what you really meant by that particular vision, but I do think it's important. You break down that ultimate vision into strategic pieces, and that's your your, your strategy document is are your tactics, right? And in fact, your strategy document. Reason why I'm a big believer in it because when you and and I believe you got to write it out and go as detailed as you can not with any numbers necessarily per se but you start to say what you're not going to do and that's what strategy is really because if you had all the resources in the world you would just do everything uh but you can't so so you make those strategic choices and you got to break it down into five year uh, strategic plan. In that five years, you should have enough visioning in five years to sort of have a thesis on how the world is going to play out. Yeah, and you may be wrong, but I think if you really know your business, I guess this is what I do with Mavericks. I have a a clear view on what needs to be done in the next five years. And then I assign major financial metrics, not as the ultimate end game, but 
just as the guideposts to help me determine, you know, am, am I, and, and there's qualitative and there's quantitative and it helps you determine, are you getting there? And then you take the five-year plan and you break it down into annual plans. And those are very financially driven. And that's actually the hardest part I find. And what I do really prefer is you take, you break down the annual plan and you break it down to OKRs all the way down into the organization and then bring it back up. And then you really determine, is it executable in that year? And that's the way how I think through this. And uh, that exercise, I think, is when the organization does that annual planning and could, uh, and, and, that, and of course, out of that becomes the budget and then becomes your various forecasts. It's not about the numbers. It's about, do you really know what's going on in your business? And what was it? Like, what is the reason why your forecasts are off? It's not so much the Delta, but you have a good idea. You start to really realize, oh my God, the real reason is the quotas for the salespeople was full of shit. And I have these outrageous numbers and I have a, a sales force that is completely immature or B, they're selling a product that is so brutal to sell because the value proposition is not clear, but those are the things without the financial metrics, it's very hard to figure out what those holes are. And that's why, that's where the discipline really comes in. And once you plan it and then you just say, boom, execute this, those are wonderful organizations. I love that quote, strategy is what you say no to. And I think it's such a great way to define strategic thinking and, and that link between 20 year long-term vision, five year kind of midterm vision, operational annual plans and objective key results that tie in, in essence, the daily activities of individual employees all the way up with what is that 20 year high level vision. Looping back to, to resilience and thinking about young people, let's say there's a 18 or 19 year old listening to this, they're in university or college and they're thinking about, okay, they, they're thinking to themselves, Resilience is something that's really important. And I want to try to become a more resilient person as I get ready for my career. What are activities, habits, uh, things that you recommend that this young person do to foster that muscle of, of resilience in themselves? The, the things uh, that will make you more resilient is to increase your adaptability. How do you increase your adaptability? through intellectual curiosity. What does that really mean? Um, learn about things that you don't know. We tend to want to stay within our own comfort zones. And, uh, and so much of the things that you might be doing uh, technically from a work perspective can get impacted by global events, by understanding economic news, understanding uh, about wars. Let me give you, you know, a very small example. Um, if 
people have been paying attention really for the last 10 years or so, it's very predictable that the world is going to be in a much more difficult place. And what I think history is going to show us, the last 70 years was probably the greatest period of humanity that we've had. It was the longest period of uh, peace that the world has seen. And we might, this might be the blip, just like 2019 to 2021, and we're seeing it. And I can go through in detail why it's happening. But the whole issue around supply chains and how we've taken advantage of the lowest cost supplier, usually in faraway lands with very, very low shipping costs. Well, what happens? When that assumption is challenged, what does it do to your business? Well, uh, you know, people are starting to complain about inflation right now. Um, and, and you wait on uh, what inflation, uh, I think it's going to be stubborn, not because of interest rates per se. And this is where we have the talk of stagflation, you know, looming, but because supply chains are going back to what they were before World War II. And so, so how do you understand that? Well, you're going to have to understand geopolitics. There's some great authors on that. This is not just a hobby. And all of a sudden, uh, when you understand what's happening in the world, you get this kind of power of, you know what? It's making lots of sense to me. And, you know, when people had asked me, uh, you know, for over a year, uh, frankly, that without going into all the details, in my white paper that I wrote on January the 7th, 2019, I predicted a complete meltdown of the markets um, and, and almost exactly with what's happening. Now, I was off by 18 months. I was off because of the pandemic, which I couldn't uh, obviously predict. But it was so obvious if you were paying attention. So what did I do? I was trying to raise that fund in a panic before um, the the second half of 2020. You can see it all in my paper on there. It was I was trying to get a bucket of money in. World falls apart, and then I start finding the great opportunities. Right now, the black swan event occurs of the pandemic. I got run over by a tractor trailer. You know, didn't predict that one coming. And I had my biggest investor pull out of me, uh, pull out of uh, investing in our fund. That was actually the first thing before the pandemic. I had three tidal waves hit me. And uh, we ended up closing the fund 18 months after or no, it was, no, it was about twelve months after I had first predicted, but the pandemic moved things about eighteen months, and I kept on writing in twenty twenty one. Okay, now here it is. I didn't spend any money for an entire year, despite holding a half a billion dollars, and I told my investors, "I'm holding on. The crash is coming," and it did. Right? I felt empowered, not because. I'm smart or smarter because I'm not, but I 
was studying these geopolitics so tightly. And there's a few authors who I study very, very closely. And they were, I was just parodying what they were teaching. And the whole team get that information and they coach us as well too. So the whole team, they must be sick of it, but they know more about geopolitics than I bet you any investment team. But that's not out of self-interest, that's a, or that's not out of just general interest. That's out of self-interest. I think it's such an important point also for young people to think about that for one to be successful in business, having a knowledge of geopolitics is something that is so critical. I find a lot of business students that sometimes I'll meet will be so focused just on business. I'll say, oh, politics doesn't really matter. And it's like, if politics is everything. <laughs> John, thank you so much. This has been such an interesting conversation. We've talked about so many different aspects of uh, resilience. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast this afternoon. Great. Thank you very much, Scott. I appreciate it. That's it for this week's episode of A New Wave Entrepreneurship. Stay connected with us via our socials and our email list. Subscribe to us in your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss our next episode. If you have feedback on today's episode, tweet us at Venture for Canada, that is Venture, the number four, Canada, or email us at podcast adventure, F-O-R, Canada.ca. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, stay safe, stay motivated, and stay grateful. A new wave of entrepreneurship is produced by Latifa Farah, and editing and mixing are also done by Latifa Farah. Basola Gamba is our editorial assistant, Mark Wallach and Premium Beat own the copyright and publishing rights related to the song used in this podcast.